Radio. An introduction to the theology of the body. A talk by Dr. Connor Sweeney at the Immaculata Mission School 2014 out of the Sacred Heart Retreat Centre in Croydon, Melbourne. Thank you very much and thank you for the royal treatment there. I must confess that I've never given a talk with that sort of a beginning, so hopefully that bodes well for today. So I'm here today to talk about theology of the body. You may or may not have heard about the theology of the body. But I'm here, I'm going to look at some of the major themes of the theology of the body in light of the present context. And I'll get to that in a second, what, as, as to what exactly I'm after there. But let's start by focusing on one simple question. And in many ways, this is a question that really drove JP2 as he wrote The Theology of the Body. And it's a simple question. And all of us, at some point in our lives, are likely going to ask this question in a very deep way. And that is simply, what is love? On a certain level, we've certainly all experienced love, you know, certain way we're all experts in love. We're loved by our parents, we love family, we love friends. So most of us have the joy, have the benefit, have the grace to have experienced some sort of love in our life. So what is love then? Based on our experience, can we say something deep and meaningful about love? Can we say something about love that somehow goes beyond, well, it feels good. Love makes me feel good. Can I say something concrete or specific about it? What is true love or what is false love? How do I distinguish between those two realities? Love is clearly something spiritual, something that happens in the mind. We think about love. Love is something that affects me intellectually. But love is also bodily. We feel the need for the bodily expression of love. So how do these two realities relate? How does the spiritual and the bodily relate to one another in the experience of love? Is the body something extrinsic or something that doesn't quite fit with the spiritual aspect of love? So I do, I do I just push it away and say, no, the body clearly is going to lead me down the path of temptation. If I want to have a pure love, I have to somehow exclude the body from it. Well, there's difficulties with that approach. But before we get to that, and we're going to look at the body in some detail today, before we get to that, I want to ask one more question. What does the culture that we live in today make of love? What does the culture tell us love is? Think of the images we see in media, in movies, in television. What is the dominant version of love going on there? Now, from a Christian point of view, from a Catholic point of view, we think of love as something committed, stable, permanent. We think of a family, of a marriage, as somehow the paradigm or the consummation of what it means to say love is this or love is that. Somehow marriage and family 
are at the heart of that experience. Clearly, the culture tells us something different. Love is associated with sex. Love is associated with romance. And we don't often get to the kind of committed, sacrificial love that we encounter in the love of Christ. This love that literally dies for us. Christ gives up his body for us, for our sin. This is the paradigm of love for the Christian. So what can we make of love in our everyday relationships? That's the basic question I'm going to ask, and we're going to try to apply that to various manifestations of love, various understandings of love we see in our culture. So I've talked about our culture. I've talked about what you could call a cultural zombieism. We go around doing this love, this love, and this love, but we don't really know what we're doing. We've lost sight of our origins. We've lost sight of our end or our destination. So essentially, the culture is now populated by zombies. We go about consuming mindlessly. So in this context, we have very many different understandings of what love is. Love is something that can't certainly be contained or explained exclusively within the categories of friendship, of marriage, as they have traditionally been understood. So we see a proliferation of alternative relationships. Um, the forefront of these is homosexual relationships, same-sex, marriage, etc. Very strong drive to legitimize that kind of relationship. So heterosexuality, marriage between a man and a woman, is no longer somehow at the heart of what love is. And it's a troubling problem for us today. Many struggle and wonder if perhaps the church has somehow missed the boat here. The church is clinging to an outdated worldview that how can we deny two homosexual persons who are committed to each other, who love one another, how can we deny them the expression of their love? So often we're confused. Often we have deep questions for the reason why the church continues to say that the love between a man and a woman is somehow the norm or at the very heart of what it means to what, what it means to say, I love. So there is the basic context. And I'm going to try to construct a way for us to approach these questions that can start to make sense of some of the confusing um, problems we face. So how many of you have heard about the theology of the body? Pretty good. How many would say you're roughly familiar with it? Okay, it's not bad. It's good. There's more and more exposure for the TOB these days. So clearly, the theology of the body has body written right into the title. So it says that, it says that we're going to say something significant about the body. And to begin to clarify what exactly we're talking about when we say body, the point John Paul II made was that the body is anything but merely a biological or a physical organism. So for him, if you start with the body from, say, a scientific point of view, the body is an object out there. I can look at all the various functions in the body. I can arrive at some sort of rational or natural 
um, objective description about what the body is. JP2 says, and if you go down that route, you're never going to get from that to love. You're never going to be able to integrate that physical, scientific body with the spiritual, personal reality of love. And JP2 is convinced that there's something more in the body for all its physicality, for all its associations with sin, with suffering, with lust, all these things that we feel so keenly bearing down upon us, JP2 is convinced that there's something deeper in the body. And he expressed this when he said that the body speaks a language of love. It is the physical way in which the spiritual reality, the personal reality of love, is embodied or expressed. So we can talk about the sacramental meaning of the body. Even within its physical, natural characteristics, it expresses something greater, something deeper, something richer. And this is something that JP2 sees in the beginning creation accounts of Genesis. There's something going on when God creates man as male and female, as man and woman. And this is very much a bodily distinction. Man and woman are different at the physical level, just as much as they're different um, in the way that they relate to the world. So JP2 is saying that there's significance in the biblical text when we see the creation of man and woman, when we see the body having a central role in the Christian drama right from the very beginning. So the theology of the body is going to show us a very particular kind of love, a theological kind of love, a love rooted in revelation, a love rooted in the fact of our creation in the image and likeness of God. Specifically, the body is going to show us something about God's plan for the human person, our calling to God's love himself. So let's begin. There's the introduction. This should be enough to hopefully keep your interest without scaring you away too much. If, I, if I'm going too quickly or if I'm talking at um, too much of an abstract level, let me know and I'll try and give further explanation as I go. I'm hoping to leave some time at the end for questions because that's when the real back and forth, the real productive things can happen. But let's start by giving you some tools so that we can have that discussion. So the theology of the body originated as a series of Wednesday audiences given in Rome between September 1979 and November 1984. The Pope's Wednesday audiences are a chance for him to give a catechesis on whatever a particular pope may feel is relevant um, at, that, at that time. So JP2 devoted these Wednesday audiences, these what are essentially sermons, to an extended reflection on the embodied human person. And this became, when someone put it together in book form, this became what we now call the theology of the body. So the context is important here. Even before the 1960s, JP2 was recognizing that we were heading for some very difficult questions when it came to things like sexual morality, for, for example. 
So we see in the 1960s the advent of the sexual revolution, the sexual freedom, the uprooting of love from the context of marriage, from the context of a family environment. So all of a sudden we have manifestations of so-called free love. Sex is unhinged from committed relationships in marriage to be something recreational, something to be taken up at one's leisure in whatever context one finds oneself in life. So in this very context, people began to question the church. The church is clinging to an outdated worldview. They're clinging to a sexual morality that's no longer relevant. So was this actually the case? Is it true that the church is simply outdated? JP2 thought, no, that, that can't be the, the case. There must be something perennial and lasting in the church's teaching. So instead of simply going with the signs of the time, adopting the progressive modes of culture, JP2 stopped and said, let's look deeper. Let's look for a deeper answer to the kind of new questions that people are asking. So he did this in his theology of the body. And JP 2s approach was somewhat unique. He didn't start with the what. He didn't start with nature. What is natural in terms of how human beings should relate as physical beings? He wanted to ask a deeper question about what he called man's subjectivity. So man as a person with an interior, with a personal dimension that transcends anything that we see in the animal kingdom, for example. So he wants to start asking deeper questions about what a body looks like in the context of a personal human being of a personal spirit, if you will. And he thinks there's going to be a very big difference between those two. So he focuses on the who, the subjectivity of the person. And he does this particularly through the light of faith. So again, he's not starting rationally outside of revelation, outside of the revealed word of God, no, he's starting at the beginning, the very beginning in Genesis. And the warrant he gets for going back to the beginning is found in the Gospels where Jesus says, have you not heard that from the beginning, he's, he's, he's talking to the Pharisees here, that divorce was not allowed from the beginning, that marriage is somehow in the beginning meant to be a permanent, indissoluble reality. So the Pharisees are questioning Jesus and saying, look, didn't Moses allow the Israelites to divorce, to end their marriages? Jesus said, perhaps, yes, he did in that, in that Old Testament context. But I've come to reveal a new reality, to go back to the beginning, to show you the plan I have for you. So this is the beginning of JP2's approach. It goes back to the beginning, back to the Genesis accounts of our creation. So what is Genesis? It's not a science handbook. Some Christians think that we can go to Genesis and we can find the scientific origins of human life. Fortunately, that's not what the Bible is all about, or not what Genesis is all about. Genesis is fundamentally, in the mind of JP2, about a theological anthropology. 
So an account of the human person. Who is the human person that's created by God? And he looks at what he calls the original experiences of Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman, to understand who the human person is. And the first of these original experiences is original solitude. So if you look at the Genesis account, God has just finished creating all the animals, um, the the waters, the, the land, and he creates Adam. And Adam looks around, he looks around at all the animals, and he comes to the realization that none of them are a suitable partner for him. He can't have, he can't relate to these other animal beings in an adequate way. Something's missing. So in the mysterious language of the text, God, as it were, goes back to the drawing board. And he says, okay, Adam, you're alone. You're not fulfilled alone as an individual human being. And so I'll create for you woman. And that's where we move into our next of the original experiences, original unity. But before we get there, it's important to stop and reflect on this experience of original solitude, Adam's loneliness, Adam's emptiness in the world. And there's two essential meanings that we get in this context. The first is that Adam realizes that on his own, he cannot find a suitable partner. Adam is utterly reliant on God. Woman is given to Adam as a gift. And it's only in that context that Adam will be able to truly live out this desire for communion. So Adam's body, we can say, is marked with the stamp of the other. In being given woman, Adam realizes his utter reliance on God. He realizes that God is the source of any happiness he may have. So this puts Adam's whole way of of being, all the things that he does, in a very specific context. It puts him in a world of creation, where God is the one who has created him, and it is only in God that he can find his true self. So we're talking here about our origins. And remember that I said that a zombie has lost the sense of its origins. Because of that, it has no understanding of who this person is and what they're called to. So Adam realizes here that he's not a zombie. He's called to something. He's from something. And it's that something that will give him meaning in his life. And a simple example can sort of help to sum up what's going on here. Think of the experience of family life. If you experience love in family life, you somehow have an experience with your origins that is good, true, and beautiful. You realize that you are loved. You realize that you are valued, that you have dignity. You realize that the world is not a cold, dark, and empty place, but that you come from love and that you're being called to something deeper. Of course, the absence of that is very tragic. 
And people who don't experience love in their family relationships have that much more of a difficult time understanding that God himself is love, that they are loved by God. So we're beginning to start to see some of the connections coming into play here. So the first meaning of original solitude is that Adam realizes that he's created by God. He realized that God is the giver of all good gifts and that only in God he can discover who he is. What's going on in the second meaning of original solitude? Adam is still somehow empty without another human being. He has God. He's in relationship to God, but he's still empty. So Adam somehow needs another human being another human person to fulfill this void in himself. So Adam's body needs another body. Adam is a physical, corporeal being. That dimension of his existence has to be expressed. So when God creates woman, Adam realizes a counterpart. He realizes somebody whom he can love. But he also realizes that for all her similarity, woman is different. Woman offers him something that he lacks in himself. So there's something profound going on here. And we'll start to get into the heart of it as we proceed. So John Paul II says that with the creation of woman, Adam and Eve overcome the frontier of solitude and discover a profound unity with one another. So they overcome original solitude, this interior loneliness. Where are we heading? In all of this, JP2 points out that the body is the key in all of this. The body is where love plays out. So man and woman, as man and as woman, understand that in that relationship of difference, something mysterious is going on. So what is being signified in the body? It can be sounding all very abstract at this stage. What exactly is the body telling us about the shape of love? Okay, it's rooted in male and female. Somehow this, there's this principle of attraction, impelling them together. There's the element of desire. There's the element of need for the other person. But what is different about this? We see similar things in the animal kingdom. Instinct. We see all the similar sort of characteristics. So what can we say about the human body that's different from the animal body? First of all, we can say that love is filial. Filial reminds us of family. So the relation of a child to a parent. And again, this tells us something about our origins. The fact that I am a body means that I'm not simply a spirit, an eternal spirit who has always existed. I come from something. I come from the act of love between my mother 
than my father. So my existence is a gift. And remember for John Paul II, the fundamental reality is love. As a child of your parents, you come from their love. They are persons. They love. There's a deep meaning in coming from that love. And JP2 thinks that this functions as an analogy for us coming from God's love. God creates us out of love as a father loves his children. And we are in that sort of family relationship with God from the beginning. So the body reminds us of the fact that we're not our own beginning. We always stand in the debt of another. So it's a very concrete sort of reality. And consequently, because of this, love has a particular shape and a meaning. Love is meant to refer us back to our origins, to show us that we come from love, to show us that to be a body is to be fundamentally receptive to our origins, to that loving origin. The second point, the second meaning of the body that JP2 gives us is that love is spousal. So not only are we the gift of love, but we're also meant to be gift for another. We're meant to live that love that we've received from God vertically, as it were, horizontally. So that love is meant to spill out in all our relationships. And clearly when we talk about the body, we talk about a very particular kind of love. We talk about spousal love. In spousal love, there is a deep kind of self-giving that we don't see anywhere else. Now, you may be very good friends with somebody. You may give that person everything you have. You may share with that person. You may be there for that person whenever they need you. But when you put the body into the mix, something different happens. There is a total gift of self being given here. And John Paul II reads the physical reality, that self-giving bodily love in the, in the sexual relationship, as a sign of that deeper interior commitment, as a sign of the spiritual reality. And this is a very unique reality in the spells of relationship. And moving to the third meaning of the body shows us starts to show us what that meaning is. So from this act of self-giving, we discover the fruitful or procreative meaning of the body. So because we are not animals, because we are persons, this fruitfulness is not merely biological. So it's not, strictly speaking, like the other animals. It's driven by the fact that we're created in the image of God to love and that our bodies, our physical realities, are meant to be a sign of the flowing out of this, this love. So if we talk about human procreation, the potential of a sexual act to bring forth new life, we need to start from the top, as it were. Start from the full reality that this act is meant to be an act of love. It's meant to be open to God. There's a wonder and awe associated with the ability to co-create with God. So this is the fundamental reality that's going on here. 
So from the spousal gift of self, the spousal meaning of the body, a new gift is received in the child. And what this tells us is that love overflows. The love of a husband and wife cannot be contained within their relationship. It grows, it expands to include a third. And so we move from marriage into a family. Love expands to include more. So love opens out into a new, deeper reality. It creates a world larger than the spouses. This is a sign of love's openness to God, how we're participating in a reality that we cannot understand at a purely physical or purely natural level. So the personal reality of the human being means that all these physical manifestations of love have a meaning beyond their mere physicality. So the child becomes a reminder of this love that transcends us, of the love of God for us, of the openness of our love and our lives to God's love. So if we somehow sum this up, I know it's a lot to take in, we can start from the filial, our origins in God's love. And this is meant to be sacramentally, as it were, played out in the spousal relationship. So love is carried through from our origins into our relationship with our spouse, and from that love flows out a third, the fruitful dimension of love. Love is ever-expanding, ever-growing. So there is the rough backdrop. And the key to take away from this is that we find ourselves as embodied human beings in a world that's not of our own making. The world's encoded with this rhythm of love that our bodies participate in. So this is sort of the key anthropological backdrop that JP2 comes up with in the theology of the body. And it becomes a very helpful way to start thinking about various forms of relationships. So it provides, you could say, a template for understanding what relationships based on the body look like. The body carries with it a certain language that, that shapes and informs how we understand love. So that becomes a norm for how we evaluate a whole range of physical or bodily relationships. So when we talk about relationships, when we talk about love, we can begin with the point that relationships that are based on the body are fundamentally different than sort of what you could say the friendship kind of relationship. So the body brings into play a sort of symbolic or sacramental dimension of love that a simple relationship doesn't have. Now, you may love your friend, you may feel very deeply about your friend, but that physical aspect means that it is somewhat distinct from a marriage relationship. The marriage relationship, the combination of this deep, interior, spiritual, personal love with its physical expression in the body is a kind of participation in love 
That again, it includes that filial, that spousal, and that procreative dimension. There's a love going on here that is profoundly mysterious, that is profoundly, that is a profound image of God's love. So JP2 started to talk about the kind of love between a husband and wife as an image of the Trinity. We see in the Trinity a relationship of love between three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's the emphasis here in a total self-giving between the persons. There's a kind of fruitfulness between the persons. There's a kind of expansion. It's not simply God um, alone or God and either the, the Son or the Spirit, but the third is somehow contained in that as the fruit of that love. So this never-ending dialogue or dance of love that's going on in the Trinity is somehow the archetype or the paradigm from which the marriage relationship flows. This relationship of self-giving between a husband and a wife in which a third is generated as a witness or a sign of their love is the mysterious reality that is being participated in in marriage. That was Dr. Connor Sweeney with an introduction to the theology of the body. For more from the Immaculata Mission School, visit cradio.org.au.